another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Patel and Mirza, and the citation for this case is 2016 UKSC 42. Now this is a really long judgement and it goes on for more than 100 pages in the end. And one of the reasons for this is because it's a case that involves nine judges. Now to put that into context, a normal case before the Supreme Court would have five judges. Occasionally there are seven judges, but on very rare occasions and for very big and important cases, there will be a panel of nine judges who will hear the case, and so that's what we have here today. So you might be expecting at this point that it's going to be a really complicated case and it's going to be difficult to understand, but in fact the problem is very simple indeed. We've got two men here, Mr Patel and Mr Mirza, and neither of them are really goodies or baddies in this case. To be honest, they're probably sort of both quite contemptible human beings and their conduct is not something that's to be admired. Mr Mirza was basically an insider who had some knowledge of certain bank and investment from the government that could potentially come forward from an informant who he knew. Mr Patel became aware of this and basically wanted in on the action, so he paid Mr Mirza £620,000 to place bets on the bank's share price and therefore make a lot of money when the announcement inevitably came. However, the problem with this was that Mr Merz's informant never actually came through for him, and so the bets were never placed. Given this, Mr Patel fairly reasonably asked for his £620,000 back, but Mr Merzer simply turned around and said, What £620,000 are you talking about? I don't know what you mean. Um, basically, he refused to give Mr Patel his money back, and so Mr Patel unsurprisingly brought an action against Mr Mirza, and so that's the case that we have before us here. However, the key question that we're going to be asking, and this is what the Supreme Court was really looking into, is whether the claim should fail in the first instance because of the illegality of the arrangement that the two men had. In other words, because Mr Patel was paying Mr Mirza to do something that was illegal, it's not fair that Mr Patel is able to benefit from this illegality, and that's one of the key principles of English law that was being examined in this particular instance, hence the reason for having nine judges. So to really understand this case and to get to the bottom of it, we have to go all of the way back to 1775, and Lord Mansfield, in the case of Holman and Johnson, who famously said that no court will lend its aid to a man who founds his cause of action upon an immoral or an illegal act. Now as this quote developed over the years, this particular phrase or maxim has two key reasons behind it. The first is a pretty straightforward one, that a person shouldn't be allowed to profit from his own wrongdoing. So if I know that I'm named in someone's will and will inherit all of their money, it's obviously not fair that I would then go and kill that person and would be able to benefit by claiming the inheritance. So it's one of those key principles of English law and law around the world that you shouldn't be able to benefit from your own wrongdoing. The Latin phrase for this term is ex terpi causa. The second principle is relatively similar in the sense that if someone was to benefit from their own illegality or their illegal conduct or behaviour, then this would completely defeat the purpose of the legal system and how would the courts actually be able to act in such a case? 
they would essentially be taking something away from one person because of an illegal action but giving to another person because of their illegal action and so those two facts kind of don't really add up and so we get to this point where we basically say actually no one should be able to benefit at all from their illegal action and so we just leave it as it is and the courts won't dirty their hands with a particular case like that which involves illegality or illegal deals. In particular within the modern context the main focus for this rule is a case called Tinsley and Milligan from 1994 and this sets up the reliance test. The reliance test basically bars any claimant if they rely on illegality in order to bring a claim. And this is obviously what we have in this case, where Mr. Patel is relying on illegality to bring a claim against Mr. Mirza. However, this ruling in Tinsley and Milligan has been widely criticised, and so this is what the Supreme Court took the opportunity to examine here, and eventually decided that Tinsley and Milligan was no longer good law and should be overruled. I guess the question at this stage then is, if we've got these good policy reasons for why an illegality or an illegal action should not be allowed to found a claim, then why should the reliance test that we have in Tinsley and Milligan be overruled by the Supreme Court? Now to get to the bottom of this we have to go across the Atlantic Ocean all of the way to Canada where the case of Hall and Herbert from 1993 basically establishes a particular test that allows us to examine illegal claims and to apply certain rules to them in such a way that we can know whether the court should involve themselves in illegal claims or as is the standard rule from the original case of Holman and Johnson in 1775 just leave them well alone. Basically in such cases the court has to consider three different factors. Firstly we have to look at the actual illegality itself. Why is this particular conduct illegal and if we do not involve ourselves, or if the courts do refuse to hold up a claim, what was the purpose of that and will it actually detract from the illegal action in the future? Basically we're looking behind the law in this situation to why the law was set up in the first place. The second thing that the courts have to consider is a question of public policy. What will be the effect if they refuse to look at a particular claim because of illegality? Will the refusal of the court discourage people from taking illegal action in the future or will it in fact only have minimal impact on that particular case? The third consideration for the court and the final consideration is one of proportionality. Would the denial of a particular claim in a particular instance be a proportionate response to the illegality? In other words, are the courts using a sledgehammer to crack a nut or are they acting in a fair and equitable manner when considering the illegality involved? In this particular case between Patel and Mirza, it was Lord Tolson who gave the lead judgment and he started with this test that we have in Hall and Herbert from Canada, but he expanded on it a little bit more and rather than applying a very strict rule-based approach as we see in Hall and Herbert, he expanded it to consider a wider range of factors as well. This could include things such as the seriousness of the illegality, so was it a blatantly fraudulent action or was it a minor illegality? This is obviously going to be something that the courts will want to take into account. They also might want to consider in a contract case such as this one, how central was the illegality to the particular contract? 
if you can imagine two businesses that are doing a very long deal and perhaps the contract runs on for hundreds or thousands of pages, if only one clause of that contract is illegal, then it seems completely unfair to render the whole contract void simply because of one minor illegal clause within that contract. Another factor is whether the illegality was intentional. Maybe the court should take a strict liability approach and say that where there is illegality we will refuse to hear the claim. But this doesn't seem to chime very well with a sense of justice and if someone doesn't intentionally commit an illegal act then it seems unfair that they should be punished for that, especially in a disproportionate manner. Also and finally, where both parties are acting illegally, there may actually be a disparity in terms of how much illegality there is. In other words, one party may be acting illegally, but only in a very minor sense of the word, whereas another party may be completely culpable and guilty of a very serious illegal action. In such a case, is it fair to really punish the party that has only done a small amount of minor illegal conduct or should the parties be punished proportionally, or should the illegality be forgotten about altogether? Again, this is another factor that Lord Tolson raised, and is a factor that courts should consider when thinking about this principle of actions founded upon illegality. Given all of these rules and factors, the Supreme Court did in the end decide unanimously that Mr Patel should be paid back the £620,000 by Mr Merza, and this was taking into account all of the factors that we have just mentioned. However, this unanimous judgment is perhaps a bit of a misnomer, and if we look more carefully at the judgment, we can see that there wasn't necessarily a unanimous agreement as to the rules and the factors that should be involved when making a decision. One of the key things that the judges did agree on if we go for that before we're looking at the disagreement is the idea of restitution and this is probably one of the main reasons why Mr Patel won the case in the end. The court basically decided that if Mr Patel was paid back the £620,000 that he originally paid to Mr Merza this would restore the parties back to their original position and it would almost be as if the illegality had never happened and this is obviously not ideal because there was a serious degree of illegality involving fraud etc that was involved in this case but this seems quite a simple way out for the Supreme Court in this particular instance and allows them to sort of do a sense of justice and to try and avoid the illegal behaviour entirely. If an action was to be brought by the Crown Prosecution Service in criminal law for example then that would be another case entirely and there would be a different range of factors that would be involved. But for civil purposes where we're just looking at the conduct of the two parties and in particular this area of contract law then we can see that perhaps proportionately restoring the parties back to their original position is quite an ideal situation to end up at. It's certainly difficult to say what the situation would have been if the investment had gone ahead and say for example Mr Mirza had either won money on the transaction or perhaps had even lost money on the transaction, where would Mr Patel then stand in relation to his original £620,000? Surely the court wouldn't allow him to actively benefit from his illegality 
and so he wouldn't perhaps be allowed the £620,000 plus the profit. But then if Mr Patel wouldn't get the profit, then the question is, would Mr Mirza be entitled to the profit because he has acted illegally as well? So should the parties have to split the profit? Somehow that doesn't seem right. And there would be a question at this stage about what is the correct thing to do and whether a criminal prosecution would be more appropriate for retrieving those funds. However, let's move on from that for the time being and let's look at the disagreement between the judges. As we said, Lord Tolson expanded on the original Canadian decision in Hall and Herbert and said that while we do have these rules, we do also have to take into account a range of other factors as well. So we already talked about seriousness of the illegality, um, whether it's central to the contract, was it intentional, was there a disparity between the level of illegality between the two parties. Um, but not necessarily all of the judges agreed that these new factors introduced by Lord Tolson were particularly useful. Essentially, the disagreement laid between a rule-based approach, which was perhaps more rigid and allowed for a strict application of the law, and a factor-based approach advocated by Lord Tolson with these various factors, which would allow for a wider degree of flexibility in terms of what was considered and how flexible the judges and the courts can be when considering any multitude of cases. Three of the judges, Lord Mance, Lord Clark and Lord Sumption, did concur with the overall idea in sense of finding for Mr Patel, but suggested that we should stick with the original rule-based approach that goes back to 1775 that moves on through to Hall and Herbert, and that by retaining these particular rules we are able to offer a degree of certainty in the law which would be lost if we took the approach advocated by Lord Tolson. The other six judges though however obviously disagreed with this and said that it wouldn't necessarily lead to a great deal of uncertainty if we took the approach advocated by Lord Tolson. Instead it offers a degree of flexibility without being overly rigid and therefore allows the courts as we said to apply the rules in a wide range of scenarios and take into account the individual factors such as the levels of illegality and the seriousness of the conduct. So before we finish, let's maybe take a minute just to consider which side is correct or which approach is more beneficial in terms of moving forward for illegality barring a claim in civil law. Obviously, all of the judges agreed unanimously in terms of the overall result, but which is better, a flexible approach that Lord Tolson advocated that takes into account a range of factors, or a rule-based approach that was advocated by the three judges Mance, Clark and Sumption in favour of applying Hall and Herbert and having a strict application? One of the key ideas in favour of the minority is this idea that rules provide a degree of certainty and this is obviously a very tempting aspect that we need to consider in any area of law. The importance of certainty and being able to regulate my conduct not only as an individual but perhaps in my business dealings as well and being able to understand when illegality will bar a claim and when it won't bar a claim is obviously important for how I deal with people in the future. This isn't to necessarily say that businesses are therefore going to take any opportunity to act illegally, but we can say with a degree of certainty how the law will be applied in such situations and can therefore take this approach and move forward with it. 
However, the question I would have, and this was something that was raised by Lord Kerr, who supported Lord Tolson, was whether a factor-based approach really loses any sense of certainty in the law. Clearly, the fact that we have got to this point in cases like Patel and Mirza are coming before the Supreme Court show that a rule-based approach that we saw in Hall and Herbert from 1993 isn't working because if the rules were really creating certainty, there would be no need for this question to actually get to the Supreme Court in the first place. Instead, Law Kerr basically suggests that the factor-based approach put forward by Lord Tolson creates a more steady ground and allows a consideration of a wider range of things when actually discussing and debating and coming to a conclusion about a case. And this ultimately means that the courts have a much more solid ground when founding their decision and giving a reason for it. If they can look to a range of factors and say, the reason that we are or are not barring this claim is because A, B, C, D, E. This is obviously a lot better and a lot more useful from a legal point of view than just saying, well, we don't think that this claim can come forward because of A and B. It would be my opinion, as well as the opinion of the majority, that the wider range of factors that you can take into account, the more reliable or the more certain a court's decision will eventually be. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast. If you did enjoy it, then remember to leave a review in iTunes as this helps other people to discover the podcast. I'm hoping to come out with some point at, with a bonus episode that looks at the junior doctor's strike and their action in the High Court. As I speak, that case is still ongoing, although the both sides have presented their arguments. I've had a look at that and it's really interesting to see what both sides are trying to argue. So hopefully when that decision comes through, there'll be a bonus episode on that. Um, thanks as ever as well to bensound.com for providing the awesome and funky theme tune to this podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you next time.